0: You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on bingemedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. Once, man and those in the water were linked. They inspired us. They spoke of the future.
1: Welcome to this review of Lady in the Water, part of the Binge Movie Aftertaste, M. Night Shyamalan Retrospective.
0: Man listened, and it became real. But man does not listen very well.
1: Join Garrett, Matt, and the returning Mike Canary as they look at the entire span of Shyamalan's work.
0: Man's need to own everything led him deeper into land. The magic world of the ones that live in the ocean, and the world of man, separated. Through the centuries, their world, and all the inhabitants of it, stopped trying.
1: From that little e weekly emission, The Sixth Sense, all the way through his new release, Old, coming out July 23rd, The boys look at all the signs of what makes Shyamalan possess one of the most fascinating careers in the history of Hollywood.
0: The world of man became more violent. War upon war played out as there were no guides to listen to. Now, those in the water are trying again.
1: Why did Shyamalan become the black sheep and not join his family in the doctor's profession?
0: Trying to reach us. A handful of their precious young ones have been sent into the world of man. They are brought in the dead of night to where man lives. They need only be
1: glimpsed. When did everything go wrong?
0: In the awakening of man will happen. But their enemies roam the land. There are laws are meant to keep the young ones safe but they are sent at great risk to their lives. Many do not return.
1: And why the hell did Mike not see the Sixth Sense until this retrospective?
0: Yet still they try. Try to help man.
1: The answers to all these questions and more all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. But man...
0: I have forgotten how to listen.
2: Lady in the Water, released July 21st, 2006. Budget was $70 million. Box office $72.8 million, but $40 million stateside. And this was directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Alright guys, we have reached it. We are here. We are at the point that Mike teased in the beginning of this retrospective where there was a point in time M. Night Shyamalan's name was associated with great filmmaking, our next Hitchcock, our next Spielberg. After this movie came out, he became a punchline. He became a joke.
3: Yeah, definitely. At uh, what point, I'm trying to remember exactly, was it where there were, like, reports, there were, like, news reports of his name would appear in trailers, and audiences would literally start booing as soon, like, I think it was for the, what's the no. fucking elevator movie that he didn't actually direct? The but,
2: Devil, yeah. Yeah, it yeah, yeah, was 2010 that like, like, that started happening. Yeah, it was yeah.
3: like, M. Night Shyamalan presents, and audiences were like, boo, uh-huh. next. was I was,
2: I was in one Street. of those theaters. Oh, yeah, I have a story about that. And this, I got to be honest, this is the podcast, out of this entire retrospective, this is the podcast I've been looking forward to the most. Number one, because it's always fun when we get somebody on who's seen a movie for the very first time. So, Mike, I have you for that. Two... We have been told, and we talked about this, Matt, in our first show of 2021, that people like when Matt is angry. And I have a feeling Matt will be angry throughout the course of this podcast. And three, I think of all the movies on this retrospective, the behind the scenes of this movie is so fucking interesting. And you see the ego right up on that screen. And there's just so many moments in this making of this movie that I'm going to detail here in a little bit that they spin your mind that this guy thought that all of these things would go over. And so, yeah, the behind the scenes of this one is fascinating. Mike, sir, you're coming into this for the first time. Yes. I'm sure you'd heard a lot of the derision. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Think where, I think where you and I met, I think there was a lot of talk about this. What were you expecting going into Lady in the Water before I get to Matt?
3: Well, I mean... I was expecting, I, I knew that there was going to be a lot of uh, gibberish bullshit. I don't know. Just that there was going to be a lot of language of, like, scrunts and narfs, things that cartoon characters say. I, I knew that there was going to be a lot of that. I, like, I knew that this was a film that was famous for having a very, like, impenetrable mythology. And I knew to expect, uh, you know, my man PG, Paul Giamatti, and Bryce Dallas Howard, I didn't expect everyone else in the cast, but we'll get to that, and beyond that, I just knew that this one was supposed to be something more of like a, I just remember like at the time, and I didn't see this movie, and I don't think I even saw the trailer for this movie at the time, but I I, I somewhat remember like Shyamalan saying like, oh, well this one's not like my other films, this is more of a fairy tale or something like that, and I was like, I don't know what that's about, but so I, I, that's kind of the extent to what, the, the extent of what I was
4: expecting for
2: this. Now, Matt, you have detailed stories about you seeing this and being warned about it beforehand, and you coming out just flat out angry at it. Was this your first time revisiting it since that experience?
4: Yes, I was so mad the first time I saw this movie that I almost, I borderline decreed that I would never watch it again. But much like I'm not Shyamalan, I have no self awareness, and little did I know that you know this would lead me down the path 15 years later of reviewing this and to be perfectly blunt you may be saying this is the most excited you've ever been to tape on this retro i agree for the discussion but this was the movie i was dreading watching the most i have in front of my tv i bought all of his movies off the amazon physical copies and it's just been staring at me no sooner or later, i popped it in, and I really didn't want to. I waited until the last second. I literally just finished watching it. I wanted to wait <laughs> until I had as little time to maneuver as possible. It was truly really crunch time. I believe I mouthed the words, fuck it, when Christian walked into the room, and I said, if you're not doing anything, sit down and watch this with me. And he goes, what are we watching? I didn't tell him what it was. I didn't tell him it was a Shyamalan movie. I just said it was Paul Giamatti, because everybody loves Paul Giamatti. And we then proceeded to just have complete silence for an hour and 40 minutes. (laughs) I'm, I'm actually
3: shocked that your viewing was silent. Like, mine was so much of me, like, yelling at the screen. Not yelling, but just, like something would happen, I'd be like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, I just, just vocally, yeah. just, you know, vo- vocally reacting to what was being given to me. Now, maybe that was just because this was my first time seeing it, but it, for me, it's hard to imagine just seeing this and, like, not uh, uh throwing their arms up. God damn it, when they announce a new, oh, no, it's the Guardian we're looking for. It's like, God, ah, I don't need another vocabulary word in this
0: one,
4: you know. <laughs> <laughs> what there was some chuckling throughout, but there, were, there was not much in the way of conversation. You know, like he wasn't asking me questions. I wasn't making declarative statements like fuck this or gotta hate this movie. Nothing like that. There was the occasional chuckle. And then once in a while you would hear a scoff or a what or just those little things and, and tackling, especially with Narf, because correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't Narf that thing from Thundercats, that little thing that follows uh-huh. the clown? Uh-huh. I was thinking <sighs> it's what Pinky from Pinky and the Brain says.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. It might also oh, yeah.
3: be that. It's cartoonish in a way, and we'll we'll mm-hmm. get to what else is cartoonish in this film. And Yeah. Whatever.
2: Before we get to that, there's so much to get into. Number one, I did want to cover this. I sh- probably should have covered it a couple podcasts ago, but at one point before Indiana Jones 4, the uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, went into production, M. my was actually brought in to do a draft of that script, and he ended up doing it, and then him, Spielberg, and Lucas just could not get on the same page, mm-hmm. and so... So his draft was immediately discarded, although he does say that there are elements of his script in that movie, but he won't go into exactly what they are.
3: Well, I'm I'm guessing it must be just like plot based or something like that, because he's so I was thinking of like, what's the exact opposite word to describe him? And it's nimble. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. There's nothing light Mm -hmm. in his filmmaking. And those Indiana Jones movies at their best have to be very nimble. They have to be very light on their feet.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, he was working with Spielberg three, four years before this, and now we have him doing this. Let me start with a positive, because we're—something tells me all three of us are going to really shit on this movie. I think the idea of making up a fairy tale to reach your kids is a beautiful thing. I even endorse the idea of maybe reenacting it for your kids. However, when you have this budget and you have this ensemble, Shyamalan proves his storytelling instincts behind this movie are just all wrong. Why take this fairy tale— and make it into such a self-serious romp as this.
3: He's just too self-serious. Like, that, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that if, that, if, you, if you own it. Matt Zoller-Seitz, I, I think that's who it was. I, this was years ago when I read this. I believe he wrote something once where he was talking about how you shouldn't expect every kind of emotion or every kind of filmmaking out of every director. You should have directors like you have friends, in the sense of, like, you have one friend who you might go to for, like, relationship advice, but you'd never trust them on dealing with work stress. Or you might have another friend who's, like, really funny to be around but can't deal with emotional stuff. But it's like, that's okay. You don't expect everything out of everybody. It's the same way with, like, directors. You should see an M. Night Shyamalan movie if you need a certain kind of fix, but you don't have to expect him to be able to give you a fairy tale, except that's what he's trying to do here, and it doesn't work
4: at all. I understand the rationale of having stories that you tell your children. In fact, there's another director who's done that, pretty much consistently for the past 20 years with Robert Rodriguez, with the Spike mm. movies and Sharkboy and Lava Girl. The difference is that Robert Rodriguez's movies, I don't personally like them, but there's an earnestness to them, and an, they're pretty innocuous. They're, they're not meant to be self-important or grandstanding just right. entertainment for a certain market. That's tremendously different than making a movie both out of spite and out of almost preaching to the choir of anyone who will listen that you're a genius and people just don't understand you.
2: Yeah, uh, and we'll definitely get into that, Matt, as we get further in. But let, let's get into the making of this because, my God, So Disney, after feeling burned by letting Shyamalan do what he wanted with the village, they all had objections to it, but they very cautiously went ahead, gave him the money, said, okay, you make money for us. We'll go ahead and give you what you want to make the movie you want to make. And it did end up making money, but not as much as they were hoping. So they were feeling pretty burned. They wanted Shyamalan to kind of go the Nolan route where they say, look, you make one for us and then we'll let you make one for you. Go the blockbuster filmmaking route, and then we'll let you do whatever you want. The other thing, after Shyamalan turned this offer down, was they could not stand the script. Hated the script. And the fact that He felt betrayed by them not seeing the genius behind what he called his upcoming E.T. movie. It made him take it right to Warner Brothers where he could make what he wanted and keep all the profits that were sure to follow. Because he did. He, at one point, guys, this thing had a $70 million budget. He was willing to put up half of it out of his own pocket because he saw what his friend Mel Gibson did with Passion of the Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, this movie was going to make 300-plus million dollars, and he could reap it all for himself. Well, I always
3: say Paul Giamatti. He's kind of the modern Christ. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> in his following and his, his devotion, you know.
4: Yeah, father and son of the holy sideways. It's great. <laughs> and the other thing is,
2: once again, guys, jobs were lost because Disney's most successful director was now fired, and the people who rejected this script in the beginning were fired from disney as a result so Shyamalan's presence means a lot of people lose jobs now all this is detailed in a book and mike you mentioned this in the previous podcast called the man who heard voices yes that's
4: the one yeah i haven't read it
2: you haven't read it see i did something unprecedented for this podcast in that i hadn't read it either but i had to I had to dive into Lady in the Water boys. I had to see what was behind this man. So I bought a digital copy online, fourteen ninety nine, and it was rather slow at the casino this week. And on downtime, I would sit and I would read this two hundred and ninety-eight page manifesto about the genius behind M. Night Shyamalan and how Disney could not see it. He had visions, guys, of this movie starting off with the castle, with Tinkerbell coming up and hitting the screen (laughs) with a star and everything. He knew this was his Disney film. It was written by an unexperienced Sports Illustrated writer who covered the Bulls, and he actually courted M. Night at a party they had met at and asked him for unlimited access to him for a biography. That's what's detailed in it. I honestly think M. Night probably courted him. The stories behind this man get so twisted.
3: It's like an, it's like a J. Edgar Hoover Nixon situation where like they're both yeah. courting each other. They're like each paranoid. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Now this book is so. Fascinating. I know I use that term a lot on this bo- on this uh, show, but my God, M Night is actually quoted boys in that book as saying this was going to be his biggest hit yet, and that Lady in the Water was his. And I quote E. T.
3: because that's insanity. Like even if you even if you thought you were making a really good film, and that for not for nothing, this is a confidently made film. Like this is a film that is like clearly like the person making it believes in what they're doing, mm-hmm. but. Even if you thought you were making good film, how could you remotely think that this was going to be a bigger hit than The Sixth Sense or Sign? Yeah. It's insane. Like, and he, him describing this as his E.T., like, that's such a, oh my God, like, I love uh-huh. that. I've never heard that quote before. I love that because it's like, with E.T., that's like Spielberg. He's like tapping into childhood fears and anxieties, but also the... The warmth of childhood and the nostalgia and everything. And he's filtering it beautifully through the eyes of this like, perfect child performance. <laughs> and saw like, someone just this tall as a fucking handyman,
4: <laughs> like it's, it's so misguided. This is definitely a movie where nobody said the words, hey, have you thought about doing X instead? There is clearly no... We, we talk about Yes Men. I guess this would be no men the movie because this is the most confidently misguided movie i think i've ever seen it's up there th- like richard Linklater's waking life
2: well out of all these movies on his resume i do think this was one filled with no people because you had people at disney rejecting the script warner brothers also did not really like it but they thought look we were able to get you away from disney so we'll give you what you want for this movie but the th- Point is, and we'll see this personified in a character in this movie. When you tell M. Night Shyamalan no, when you tell him that he's not the genius that he puts himself out to be, he lashes out. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. So we are seeing people say no to him. This is him lashing out at those people.
4: Here's the the ultimate microcosm of the situation that irks me. Because this is his fifth movie, technically seventh movie, but... The fifth that yeah. we're discussing.
0: Mm-hmm. The Village
4: was the only one that got a mixed reaction at best. Because that movie had a devoted fan base. There were people who really liked it. It was not panned like this movie was. Just because there's a considerable majority gives you the impetus to lash out at everybody. Like, what? Oh, yeah. How big of a fucking egomaniac e- e- do you have to be to do that for something that you did not make the cat in the hat? level of, of an embarrassment. It's just, the man's a fucking infant, apparently. Like, oh, God. No, I know
3: what you're saying, because, like, with the whole, I mean, we're going to get to it, but, like, with the whole film critic character in the film, it's like, no, dude, you haven't gotten there yet. Like, you haven't, uh, you, yeah. the critics haven't gotten to you it, it, to the extent that you can do this yet. Uh, exactly. You, you. It's like, it's like, I just fucking watched Tenet. It's like the M. Night Shyamalan of, like, 2010 fucking inverted to like go back to 2006 to insert a film critic character who would be there having absorbed the Shyamalan films of 2010. Like it's like that kind of thing. It's like, it's like, it's going to get so much worse, man. You, you really, you're shooting your load here on this one.
2: What's so fun about discussing this guy is that Matt and Mike, you too. We've all discussed Michael Bay on this podcast. I've gone into Tarantino's resume. We got into a lot of Harvey Weinstein discussions. Those two at some point have been revealed to be kind of douchebags, kind of assholes. And Shalom is not doing anything harming anybody or doing any physical harm or doing any emotional harm to anybody. It's Correct. just the fact that his ego is this out of control right? is what makes me just baffled well, by and, the guy. And that's what makes it so fun.
3: Yeah. And it's, it's detectable from his films. Like there's yeah. some directors who are egomaniacs, but you wouldn't necessarily know it until you heard an interview with them or something like that, or you heard a behind-the-scenes story. With this one, it's like present as you're watching the film. Like It's, it's fucking tangible. It's it's, it's that clear. Yeah. And that's, that's really saying something.
2: And one more excerpt from the book, because, again, this book is just... If you want to just have a permanent smile or scowl on your face, just read this book, because there are so many stories. And I had to point this one out. At one point, there's an exchange between Paul Giamatti and M. Knight where Night tells him that, I didn't want Brad Pitt in this role, but... Your weight is kind of skirting the line. You should probably watch it while we start filming this. I don't want you to gain much more weight. And after this, the author praises M. Knight for standing up to Paul Giamatti. It is just a fucking ego stroke to Jesus the Christ. end degree. So the,
4: so the
3: book is like that, too. Like the book is. Yeah, absolutely. It's not oh, yeah. like the fucking, um, what's the fucking devil's candy? Like the bonfire and the vanities takedown book. It's, oh. not, it's not like that. Yeah.
2: And it's called The Man Who Her Voices. And there are points in the book where M.I. Shyamalan's like standing up to Disney, right? Like this is his these are his heroes, and these are Walt Disney was a huge influence on him growing up, obviously. And so he had to think, you know, I, I have this great story, I gotta take it to somewhere else, but it's gonna turn out okay. And then at one point there's like italics, and the italics read, it's not going to work out as well this time. And then the chapter ends with him saying, yes, it will. It's so weird. Are these actual voices he's hearing? Is he crazy? His wife at this time was getting a doctorate in psychology at the same time he was doing this movie. Is this investigation by her into his psyche? God damn, there's so much to dissect with that book. You
3: guys realize we haven't talked about a scene in this movie? Like oh, this, uh, how much we've yeah, gone into I this know. and we haven't even gotten one second into this movie? We're, we're 20 minutes
2: in, but I just, I had to get into this because just, The goal behind it, yeah, yeah. (laughs) The goal behind it is just—it's so great to get into. All right, Matt. Since Mike is pushing for us to get into the movie, no, 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 no. Listen, listen. (laughs) No, no. It was my next line anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It was my next line anyway. (laughs) Matt, are you ready?
4: I'm as ready as I will ever be. So the good news is, once we're done with this, I will never have to watch this fucking movie again. So (laughs) let's let's dive into this. (laughs) Unless they do a sequel. Hell <laughs> yeah. Well, unless they call it bitch in the puddle or something. <laughs> I will not want to watch it. Lady Two back in uh, the water.
2: We start off with a preamble. And it should be said, this preamble was actually a mandate from the studio. After they watched the cut that M Knight turned in, they made a note that Shyamalan needed to tell the audience what the fuck is going on, who all these people represent. Because we know all the characters that we're going to be introduced to, but there was never something that pointed to who was supposed to do what. What this intro was supposed to do is introduce us to the story. But what it does yeah. is actually confuse <laughs> us even more. It <laughs> confuses us even more while at the same time talking down to us, saying that man is in the wrong and that the people underneath the water are not giving up on us. Oh boy, <laughs> this do you
3: guys think right this away. Who's doing this? The narration.
2: Oh, I yeah, heard the uh, name. David Ogden Steers.
3: it's yes, fucking David Ogden Steers from Mash. How did that happen? Like, why? Why him of all people? Like, it's not. It's not Morgan Freeman, but it's also not a nobody. It's like, like, uh, and David Ogden Steers is good. He's got a great voice, but it's like such a such a choice. Anyways, yes, this is a fucking terrible opening. I thought the opening to Unbreakable <laughs> was bad. <laughs> this is, this is, when, when that title comes up, it's like a fuck you. It's like a slap in the face when like, cause they've got these like childlike or like cave painting style drawings with this uh-huh. pretentious ass narration that is like, so it's that thing where, where it's like, it's explaining so much, but it's not actually explaining anything. It's just saying a lot of things, you know, it's like, it's like when you're when, uh, with, um, with like, with your, like, when you're like, with your like six year old nephew and he's explaining to you all his whatever toy that he's into, you know what I mean? His little tops, but they fight or what, you know what I mean? And he's like, and you're like, I, I don't care. Like, well, you have to just sit there and like, act, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he's just like giving you names. He's throwing proper nouns at you, but you can't do anything with them. That's what this beginning is like. And then Lady in the Water comes up and you're like,
4: oh no, what have I got myself into? Much like the rest of this movie, I guess you could say the compliment you can give is that it's consistent, And that this entire movie is inconsistent because this opening talks about how humanity listened to the the people under the sea or whatever, you know, with Ariel and Flounder and all that shit. But (laughs) then there comes a point where the narrator says, humanity sucks at listening. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't make any goddamn sense.
2: We are then introduced to Cleveland Heat, played by Paul Giamatti. Now, as you can imagine, this role was actually shopped around a bit. At first, M Knight really wanted. You guys ready? Yes. He wanted Tom Cruise.
3: <laughs> well, hold on. Tom so, Cruise. To be fair, most of Paul Giamatti's roles were originally supposed to be Tom Cruise. <laughs> 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 He's second on the show. Paul... <laughs> Tom Cruise got the
2: script, and M Knight never heard from him again. They also thought long and hard about maybe getting Kevin Costner, which I can actually see. Yeah, that actually
3: does make sense.
2: And uh, even Johnny Depp was considered. Oh my um, God. He was in that documentary that I talked about last podcast where he said, M. Night's kind of crazy. I really don't want to work with him. And I'm starting to feel like maybe that wasn't him acting in the documentary, that this this is how he felt because he kind of gave a fuck no to M. Night when he showed him the script. But the one they really wanted, guys, the one M. Night courted hard for was Tom Hanks.
3: I mean, that makes sense. It would be a little splash-like, but.
2: Well, yeah, that's and, and so what I was just about ready to say. The funny part about that is, while getting interviewed in the promo stuff for this film, Knight did his best Patty Jenkins impression while claiming ignorance and swearing up and down that he didn't see the parallels in getting the star of Splash to be in a movie about helping a girl who lives in the water, played by the daughter of Splash's director.
3: Oh, shit, yeah, I didn't even make that connection. Mm-hmm,
2: but... Yeah, they, uh, they ended up getting Paul Giamatti.
3: See, that makes sense because, like, so some of those choices that you just named don't make any sense. Like, Tom Cruise and Johnny Depp, like, that's yeah. ridiculous. I mean, because the whole point of this character as he's presented or whatever is he's, like, an everyman-type character. He's, like, the least likely mm-hmm. hero that there is. And that, that's whether this is a good movie or a bad movie. Like, that's the way he's presented it. He is a, a nobody, like, completely ordinary-type person who, like, rises to the occasion and everything like that. So, like... Paul Giamatti is, like, the, he's, like, the realistic version of that. He's the Harvey P car, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like... Yeah. Yeah, oh, he's, yeah. like, the ultimate, like, beat-down, like, every man, like, fucking... You can see the stains in his shirt, uh, you know, showing up to the <laughs> yeah. Big Fat Liar movie premiere with, like, chili stains on his jeans. Like, it's great. You should look up pictures of uh, Paul Giamatti at the Big it's Fat great. Liar It's great. But anyway, yeah. uh and, and... But then Tom Hanks, that makes sense because he's, like, the movie star every man, where it's, like... He's an everyman plus. Like, he's, like, an everyman that you wish you were. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, like, that's, uh-huh. that makes sense. So, like, but if you're going from Tom Hanks to Giamatti, that's, like, you're that's making a choice to, like, commit the film to, like, a grubbiness that is not suited
4: for this kind of story at all. You know what I mean? The difference between the Tom Hanks everyman and the Paul Giamatti everyman is that Tom Tom Hanks is the guy that you listen to him talk and you want to go have a beer with him. Paul Giamatti is the every man that you see outside your housing complex getting the mail and you don't want any social interaction with before you go back inside. Yeah. (laughs) That's That's the analogy that I use. And much like Mike, I'm a huge Paul Giamatti fan. And I think he does as good of a job as you possibly can with this story And with a director so dead set, almost to the point of a vendetta against his detractors. Yeah. Because, you know, Giamatti's a consummate professional. I don't think you've ever seen him really phone it in. Even when he does something, like, horrendously misguided, like when he was in that Spider-Man movie for five (laughs) minutes. Oh, yeah. You're like, what the fuck are you doing? There's a clear direction he takes. Yeah. And And I think here... He does a good job of playing this put upon guy who's pretty much just doing this because he has no other options in life, not much ambition. Until you find out why, Which <laughs> doesn't make anything. But we'll get to that. But yeah, no, I, to-
3: I totally know what you mean because it's like he he can be like he can he can miscalculate a performance. Like there are movies where Paul Giamatti's in and you're like, ooh, like I don't know if that was the right choice, but he is making a choice. and He's making an effort. You know what I'm saying? uh and then and then this i agree with you like he is as good here as you can expect with the material that he's given i can see a a a, a parallel universe where things are very different and this is like a really great like affecting performance and it's not that different of a performance but just everything else around it is different that's kind of what's going on here With, with one exception there's one element of this performance that i think is is not good but that's something that is very difficult for any actor to deal with and that's that's the the stutter that he does any kind yeah. of disability like that uh, or, or speech impediment that can be a real iceberg for an actor like that can be and we talk, we talked about we talked about last time about I was going to say we yeah.
2: went to that in great detail last week mm-hmm. yeah, it has to be said too that I mentioned all those other actors they kind of wanted for this but Paul Giamatti was in the midst of the best couple of years of his career around this time you know he was coming off the buzz of sideways yeah and I also want to say that he he made Shyamalan wait until the upteenth hour before finally calling Knight up one night and saying, and I quote, dude, I'm so lady. Meaning he was ready to do this.
3: I'm so lady. Uh, That's, yeah. That's my Paul G. It's, it's not so much Paul you know? Giamatti as it is Paul Giamatti in American Splendor. Like, it's a very specific Paul Yeah. G.
4: Well, like, I, I imagine I'm calling him calling up and being like, you know, I really want to make this movie. You know, I think we're going to make it the best job possible. But you got to keep, like, six feet away from me or I'm going to knock your fucking teeth <laughs>
2: i'm not gonna say i don't like him here i think you guys have detailed why in fact i think this introductory scene of him killing this bug or rat or whatever is in the apartment i think this is rather fun i just don't know if even if they had gotten paul newman to take this material that he could make it watchable no no Uh, paul giamatti i find him to be okay here but as you guys have said i think that's mostly due to the material he's given we are then introduced to the new tenant named mr farber Played by Bob Balaban. Now, interesting thing about this character is that he's going to be portrayed as a bitter movie critic. Matt, you and I have spoken about this kind of thing as recently as Wes Craven's New Nightmare, where Craven named one of the biggest naysayers in that film after the head of the MPAA. And, Mike, you totally went into this earlier, but the funny thing about this is that M. Night has always had pretty decent reviews. Even his most recent movie. Up to this point, yeah. Yeah. Even his most recent movie, it was The Village, it holds a Rotten Tomato meter that's in the 40s, so it's mediocre at best. The critics were not after him in the majority. The one who really turned on him last time, and Matt, you talked about this, was Roger Ebert, and he had praised all of Shyamalan's films up to that point, but he ended up giving The Village a nasty review. But what this bitter character represents to me is M. Night's inability to take criticism. Yeah. I see that come through in this guy's monologues and everything he talks about. He doesn't want to go see a romantic film. There's no originality left. This is him just lashing
3: out. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I always say that, like, I, I think sometimes critics, and I say this as a uh, someone who is <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes, but uh, uh, I think sometimes critics can uh, be, um, I'm trying to think what's the, what's the right way to say it giant babies about uh when uh uh-huh. they're portrayed on film like i thought that like the fucking film critical response to that character in birdman and like you can you can dislike the movie birdman like that's totally fine but like there was a lot of like fucking film critics like wringing their hands over like the the negative portrayal of a, of a theater critic and i was like oh boohoo like you know every every fucking profession gets some kind of negative portrayal in film and like these are filmmakers like that that's part of the fucking deal is that they make the movie you can react to the movie and you can say it's complete shit and then they can make their next movie and have a, a film critic get eaten by godzilla and then shit out or whatever like that's part of the give and take and you just kind of kind of have to accept that but in this particular instance it's like it's so not even one-dimensional i mean it's like it's like non-dimensional it's just so uh-huh. so transparent yeah.
2: it's, there's no dimensions to right it.
3: Bob Bellivan is the guy you get for this if you need this guy. You know what I'm saying? If you need some guy
4: to be Yeah, right, absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
4: It's so funny the way our retrospectives merge, because a couple months ago we talked about how Leonard Maltin in Gremlins 2 had enough self-recognition to make himself the butt of joke and sort of put water under the bridge. I don't think he mm-hmm. compromised in his review for Gremlins. He just saw the opportunity. The difference here. And, and there's a lot of differences, is that there's not an ounce of satirical wit with Shyamalan's depiction of critics. This is the most... The food critic in Ratatouille is not this much of a cartoon character. How's <laughs> that for a tie into our Toy Story retrospective with Pixar? Wow. I found that of all the things in this movie that I detest, and believe me, there's a lot. I think you could fill the Titanic with the amount of shit that I hate in this fucking movie. <laughs> just the way he attacks critics as people who are just there to point out imperfections and everything, they take no semblance of joy, they're startlingly arrogant. You're painting with a very broad brush, and I'm pretty sure that there are some critics who are like that. I can name some. But as a film critic myself, I am Rot- used to be on Rotten Tomatoes when I was writing consistently, you got to learn how to take the punches as well as give them out especially if you're Shyamalan, who's not a critic, but God knows he fancies himself as a critic because he, he thinks he has mm-hmm. the ability to tell people what is genius, and if you don't agree with his message, you're fucking wrong. So, misguided, I think I'm going to use that word a lot during oh, this, yeah. pretty much this entire review, and maybe for the next couple movies. That's what the end stands for. We are a- Yeah. Misguided, <laughs> next <in myself. laughs>
2: We are also introduced to university student Young Soon Choi. Now, this character was written as a tall, almost Amazonian girl who kind of had rolls of fat, but was also dressing like Britney Spears. This is how he describes her, folks. I'm not just saying this. But M. Night saw this actress audition, and he knew he wanted her for this role. Cleveland has a conversation with the pool guy who says that the filter is now full of weeds. And Cleveland says that no one's been having any pool parties at night. And by the way, how could... This damn pool closed at seven o'clock. That is way early. I've been in apartments and I've had apartment pools, and they nine o'clock at the earliest is when they close. This pool closes at seven? Weird. So what it's you're saying? I mean, that if that's your mean, biggest problem with this movie, there's something wrong with you. But I'm just saying, I'm just pointing it out. Yeah. <laughs> He's like that doesn't
4: make any
3: sense. I'm picturing like I know that Siskel was long dead by the time this movie came out, but like I'm picturing like. Siskel and Ebert, the show starts up, and Ebert's like, our next film is Lady in the Water. It's not terribly French, but anyways, it's like, our next film is Lady in the Water. And right off the bat, let's ask ourselves, what apartment complex has a pool that closes at seven? <laughs> Thumbs down for me, Jake. Thumbs down for me, too, Roger. Slightly better than Siskel
2: We also meet Reggie, who works out on one side of his body.
4: We... <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> these, character, these character introductions... This whole opening where you're meeting all the different tenants, it's shot with the quirk of a sitcom where it's like, hey, meet this wacky person who lives right next door. Tune in next week to see what wacky hijinks they do next. That's exactly Mm -hmm. what I was thinking when I was
3: watching. I was like, this is the fucking first five minutes of... A sitcom where it's like Cleveland. The well, it wouldn't be the Cleveland show because that's already a show. But you know what I'm saying? It's like a, a show where Paul Giamatti, like, which I would fucking watch. A show where Paul Giamatti is the super of a wacky apartment complex in Philly. Oh it's yeah. Like, oh yeah. I fucking watch the shit out of that. But it's like that's that's kind of what the vibe is. Like you meet all these wacky characters and he just comes in and is like,
4: "Ah, oh, you're still working out the one side of your body." in my box, you know. And stop looking directly into the camera, Shyamalan. Good God.
2: We also meet Mr. Leeds, who seems to always just stay in, criticizing all that happens around him. We meet Mrs. Bell, who likes animals, and a rock band who goes against the rules, smoking in the rooms. All these stinking characters are making my head spin. He's got so many characters in this one space. They're all going to be playing a role somehow. But man, you guys nailed it. This is a sitcom-style fucking introduction.
3: And there's hardly a filmmaker who's less suited to do that kind of Sorry. Like, I'm realizing this now, like, as we watch more, is that, like, his best films, like, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, those are movies that have, like, four characters, basically. Mm
0: -hmm. You know,
3: they've got, like, a central character who you can pin the entire sort of thing on, and, like, a couple of people who are, like, their foils, who are sort of reflections of their own struggles in some kind of way. Keep it tight. Keep it very closed cast of characters. And be be sincere about it. Be earnest about who these people are. And as these films have gone on, he's had he's like created bigger and bigger like communities for each thing. So like last mm-hmm. time, you know, you've got the village and everything here, you've got this apartment complex, and it's like the more characters he adds, the worse his writing gets because he starts writing these characters, these like side characters who have to be like the color, you know, they have to like add like yeah. oh and they gotta add some wackiness to it. And he is not capable of that doing that kind of writing. He's not funny. Like he's not he doesn't have humor mm-hmm. in that sense, or really any sense from what I can tell. Um uh he doesn't have that like of like being able to today somebody in broad strokes without them being a stereotype which we can get into later he, he doesn't he's not ultimate <laughs> you know I mean? like we don't yeah. want to see fucking uh uh in that nashville you know this is <laughs> not what we're, what we're looking for
4: here i mean the script is so lazy they should have subtitled it shortcuts that would have been his homage to rob rollman <laughs>
2: We are also getting a full view of the apartment complex, and it should be said, they did not go to a pre-existing abandoned apartment complex to shoot. They actually built this from the ground up, guys. And that, more than anything, is why this budget is so much higher than it looks. This was built from the ground up. And it looks pretty, don't get me wrong, but god damn, couldn't you save some fucking money by going and renting out a fucking complex for a day?
3: Uh, There's something that happens to some directors. It happens to a lot of directors. Including ones I really love. Where they get to a certain level of budget and they can't go below uh-huh. that. Once they've made their I mean, this this even this is not that high, but would you say it was like seventy million or something like that? Which is 70, a lot yeah. for this kind of movie. Yeah, yeah. He's not making tenant, you know what I mean? But like still seventy yeah. million. Once you made your like seventy million dollar movie, like a lot of directors can't go below that. And so everything becomes more expensive because they need more control over this, they need more control over that, they need this to be bigger, they need this to be more real or whatever like that and this is not something that's just inclusive to like bad directors like my favorite contemporary director is martin scorsese and i think he's kind of gotten to that point in a way where it's just like every single one of his films has to be like bigger and budget longer like more mm-hmm. sort of intense than his last one like that's kind of where he's been in the past 20 years so that's just something that happens to a lot of directors and it feels like that's ha- happening here like where it's like this should be kind of a small movie in a lot of ways like this should be Kind of an intimate film, or hope, hopefully it should be kind of an intimate film. And it should have kind of a scrappy energy. If you want to have this main character who's every, down on his luck, every man kind of working show guy, the film should maybe have that sort of energy. I'm like, I'm, I'm not a Robert Rodriguez fan, like I, I don't like Robert Rodriguez's films, but you brought him up earlier, he's like a guy who has that like scrappy, like mm-hmm. let's fucking do this thing, like, you know, ho- holding it together with scotch tape energy, and maybe this film could have benefited mm-hmm. from that.
2: So, as Cleveland's sleeping, he hears a splash in the pool. He goes out, and hears a narf named Story. Not subtle, guys. Story. Played by Bryce Dallas Howard. Oh, this poor girl. I imagine her thinking like the majority of the cast... That if she just does what her out-of-his-mind director tells her, she will come out looking just fine because this is the modern genius of our times, right? But I find her characterization of this main character to be rather laughable.
0: It's like
4: she watched Sissy Spacek and Carrie. It's like staring at stuff like Goldfish, a lot of perplexed looks. I think she's—I don't know if it's her entirely, but every performance decision that she makes— she seems unsure of what she should be doing. I think that's right.
3: And I think that there's no character here. She's not given a character here. And so she has to sort of make decisions on top of that. But there's really no decisions to be made. I mean, this is, she's a prop in this movie. It's honestly like if I if I was Bryce Dallas Howard, I would be, uh, well, a lot about my life would be different if I was Bryce Dallas Howard. But uh, one of the things that would be different is I would be like looking at the script and I'd be like, you really got to give me something to work with here like in terms of like what what is this character's motivation that couldn't be filled fulfilled by, like, a fucking magic amulet. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, what, this is yeah. not a person that she's playing, and I'm not even saying like, in the sense of, like, the character is not human. Like, you can still find, you know, notes within that and everything like that, Not, I mean, even if you're, if you want to play some someone who's, like, kind of an abstraction, like P- uh, Peter Weller in Robocop, like, that, that's a, like, a non-human person, like, motivation, human motivations and there's still a character there. There's still something that's Uh, driving them. They're still an anima, but Mm -hmm. here, I mean, the story is not only is she a character with no sort of agency, but she, I mean, the way that she's portrayed is kind of like, I, I I sometimes am reluctant to go into this stuff because it can be kind of taken the wrong way, but it's, I mean it's kind of sexist, it's kind of uh or at least patronizing in a way. Uh like, for she's it. playing a yeah, she's playing a very infantilized character and like I, I understand that like yeah. that's kind of, she's not a real person. So in, in some ways it makes sense, but she's given like nothing to work with here and other than just these like notes of preciousness
4: and it's fucking gross, man. It doesn't work at all. She also can't succeed at anything. On her own. I get that's embedded into the story, but every time she tries to go outside, she only escapes death because Paul Giamatti saves her. Yeah.
3: There are ways to have a character, um, what would be an example? Uh, Sigourney Weaver in, um, uh, Ghostbusters. Or, or, oh, you can yeah. Rick in Ghostbusters. They're fulfilling a role within the, the magical kind of mythological framework you've created. But they're still a person, you know what I mean? There's still uh-huh. humanity in some level there. There's still something to give the actor to work with. But that does not happen.
2: And what's interesting is you guys are saying there's no character here, there's no portrayal here, there's no consistency here. This is the title fucking character of the movie. You know, know. you would think of all characters, he would make this one the most, I don't want to say relatable, but at least likable. And I'm not faulting Bryce Howard at all. I just think she was just given no direction. Like I said, I think she was just kind of trusted her director to take what she's doing and turn it into something. And he really doesn't. So Cleveland slips on the side of the pool and falls in only to be rescued by Story. And of course, he wakes up fully dry and in his apartment with Story right beside him. She tells him that she's from the blue world, and she even asks him if he feels an awakening. <laughs> Matt, did you get did you get the Force Awakens
4: trailer vibes here? <laughs> she's like, "There's an awakening." I had that exact um, thought. I definitely thought of the prequels. Much like the village, this feels like it exists at the George Lucas school of acting, and I use that term extremely loosely. There's a lot of comparing. To
3: Shyamalan yes. and Lucas, and I, I wrote an article that compared uh, George Lucas to David Lynch in a, in a, in a way, like, uh, talk, talk, that was less oh, about, right. like, their styles or anything, and, like, I think you can make that, like, comparison of, like, Shyamalan Lucas, like, guys who had this success early on in their career and got to a point where it's just, like, everybody just on them as, like, these geniuses who could create sort of anything. Now, I guess the difference there is that I feel like even as bad as some of the Star Wars prequels got... With Lucas, you never felt like he was up his own ass in terms of how genius what he was making was. Like, it seems like he was he, – mm-hmm. he liked what he was making and everything like that. But you didn't think he was making the Star Wars prequels because he thought, man, the world needs to see the genius mm-hmm. of what is going on And with George Lucas, whereas that's clearly what's going on here. Oh, my God. This fucking movie. Like, I, I – like <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> just move on. <laughs> Cleveland
2: realizes, while being around her, that he does not stutter. Which, as we talked about earlier, is just a weird characterization with this character. It's not even Story's... a half
3: characterization. It's like a quarter of a character. Like, it's, it's not even yeah. followed up on at all. It's just an affectation. Not for, like, at all. A couple of scenes. So, yeah.
2: Story says that she is scared and she falls asleep. I was hoping M. Night wouldn't totally splash this up and have them have a romance, and I'm thankful to say that he does not. This is more of a protective vibe that he's giving with her. If he makes one decision right, I think that's a good one.
3: It's a weird one, because I once described Paul Giamatti as cinema's first one-sided sex symbol. By which I mean that he just can't help but convey a certain level of horniness emanating from himself. It's not like uh, Marilyn Monroe or whatever. I'm not dissing on Giamatti's appearance. But it's, like, it's not like Marilyn Monroe where like the audience watches and is like, oh my God, it's Marilyn Monroe. And the sex, inter- the sex appeal goes from the, uh, the sex uh, interest goes from the, from the audience to the star on screen. With Giamatti, it's the other way around where you're watching it and you're like, I think Paul Giamatti maybe wants to fuck me. Like, he's just got a heartiness <laughs> that emanates from his being. So I don't know if that's the right call here. I don't know. Whatever. We'll, we'll move on. That.
2: So while taking story outside, Cleveland notices a scrunt roaming outside. These are dog-like creatures covered in grass. And this is the beginning and just one example of M. Knight trying his best to be a token of his day. All of this mythology just falls on its face, doesn't it, guys?
3: I had the thought when I was watching this, I was like, oh, okay, so I guess this is what, if I showed my late grandfather the Lord of the Rings films, this is what he would be thinking about those. You know, like, he'd be like, what the (laughs) fuck is, like, snarf, (laughs) crunt. (laughs) <laughs> like, it's just, it's just made up words. It's like, I mean, it, it's just so, yeah. it's just, it's so stupid. It's like so bullshit. I mean, that's the word I can't, I can, <laughs> like there's no, there's nothing to it. There's no commitment to it. He doesn't even believe no. in the shit he's doing. And all these terms, just not realize how ridiculous they all sound? In, in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's a character named Slartibartfast, Fast. And the reason why he's named that is because when they d- did it as a radio show, Douglas Adams wanted to write a character whose name sounded like it couldn't be said on the radio because it was vulgar, but it was not actually vulgar. It's just, like, as close to being vulgar as you could without having it actually be vulgar. And, like, that's kind of what some of these names sound like, like, Scrunt and Narf. Like, they all sound like weird sex acts that, like, Uh fucking 14-year-old, like, (laughs) <laughs> lies about having done in the locker room like yeah just, me and her we narfed last night it was
0: crazy <laughs> I was to...
4: there's a characterization mm-hmm. holy shit the difference is that tolkien's world is entirely fantastical and as a result you're willing to give it a lot more leeway when you try mm-hmm. to mix and incorporate the super fantastical into a reality setting you need some kind of internal logic and this movie doesn't have any the rules that they come up with about the tree monkeys that are like the overseers that Mm -hmm. have these rules that are effectively unspoken but people know about the grass wolves know about i would have punched myself in the face talking about this movie i sound (laughs) melodic when i describe it so bad
2: Oh, you guys should read the children's book, which I actually have in my possession. There actually is with. a
3: children's book of this?
2: Oh yeah, he he released it the same day as this movie and I ordered it from Amazon.
3: Is it like a novelization it's, or is it like a fucking picture book? No, no, book? it's a picture book.
2: It's thirty pages. Oh my God. And you know it's not bad. I, I find it to be a tempered down where the wild things are a little bit. You know, it's not bad. Let's just put it this way. Evangeline Lilly came out with a children's book a few years ago. It's better than that. Cleveland gets laughed at by the guy from Animal Control as he tries to explain what the animal was to him. And we are told here that they're in Philadelphia. But
3: man, I see a lot of forest here, guys. Well, I don't. I don't want to get uh, past this without talking about how terrible the CGI is in this film. Talking about this, oh, this creature yeah. that shows up, like, and I know that that's kind of like a, an easy and like even kind of lazy complaint to be like, oh, the CGI from this movie from 15 years ago is subpar. Like, yeah, no, we get it, but like, it's it's really bad. Like, it's really it's really it like you yeah. you, you got to think that like he had to have been able to do better than this, especially in a film where like the creatures that he's doing like are the only real notes of magic in the film so like the entire conceit of the Mm -hmm. film has to rely on the fact that we believe that these creatures exist and the fact that the cgi is so bad completely breaks our suspension of disbelief it's just you just see paul giamatti running from a fucking gamecube graphic and it's like not good you know
2: we are then told that something keeps turning on the sprinklers and Can I give a compliment, guys? We've been going going off the rails as far as uh, criticizing this movie. I find this to actually be a good piece of storytelling. You always want to set up a warning before danger happens. And uh, this whole idea of these sprinklers turning on, it's kind of like Spielberg with the glass of water shaking before the T-Rex shows up. I think it's kind of effective. Now, what they do with it obviously is bad, but I like this storytelling device.
3: I, I I see what you're saying. Yeah, that, that actually does make sense. It does add a note of atmosphere, I think, to the film, like this uh-huh. this, this kind of, which is nice. Like it, there actually is kind of a, a nice note of this sort of water coming down. It's like rain, but it's not real rain. It kind of gives you that sort of idea of like nature plus modernity. And there's something kind of nice about that. There's a misty quality to it. And um, yeah. yeah, it's not bad. You're right, actually. Cleveland then asked Troy
2: to look up the word "narf" for him. And she says it's an east side bedtime story that she will have to ask her mom to expand on. Cut to the old Korean lady who apparently knows all of this story and will conveniently be guiding the plot along. She says the Narf is a sea nymph who must be seen by the one human chosen for her or the vessel. And seeing the Narf will awaken something in the chosen one. And when she succeeds, she will return home by the eagle who brought her there.
3: How does this person know this? I hate this so much. It's so it's so fucking condescending. And again, like yeah. there are certain words that I try almost not to use when I'm talking about films, just because it can be very inflammatory. But it's like it's so racially fucked up. And I yes. and I know that Shyamalan he he is Asian American, he's South Asian American. But that doesn't I mean he regardless of what background he's coming from, he's he's drawing on a very obnoxious and very tired ethnic stereotype of the Asian person who is the Mm -hmm. fountain of wisdom, who holds all the ancient secrets. And it's like, give me a fucking break. Like this is, this is out of a movie from the fucking thirties. Like it's so retrograde and it's, there's nothing about it. There's no subversion to it. The only thing that could even be regarded as like a twist on it is having this much more like kind of quote unquote Americanized kind of younger relative who's kind of translating it, but she's a fucking stereotype too. So it's like, it doesn't, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I I hated this aspect of
4: the film. I hated it so much. Listening to Mike get angry, my inner Palpatine is going, good. (laughs) Good. Because he's right. And then Shyamalan tries to justify it with the, uh, here comes my shitty joke, fish out of water comedy, where they intercut to Bryce Dallas Howard walking around the apartment like a blind lady stumbling over shit, just picking up random stuff his trinkets and then Paul Giamatti's outside handing the phone back and forth. It's Broad is being kind because broad implies that it's actually funny at points. I never laugh with this movie whatsoever. I'm always yeah. laughing at it or I'm just upset by it. Yeah, like,
3: I, you know, it's true, you don't even laugh at this movie. Like, it's not one of those, like, spoiler alert, we're going to get to a Shyamalan movie at some point that you will laugh at. But uh this is not even uh. that. Like, I just kind of stood there, like, kind of like, my mouth agape. It's, like, shockingly bad. It's, like, you, you do kind of want to watch it just to be like, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, what can this really be what you're doing? And it, it's not, like, amusingly bad. You're just like, Jesus mm. fucking Christ, this is what you're doing, Shyamalan. And it's, spoiler it is what he's doing.
2: Another huge fault of this movie too is that it is once again caked in Shyamalan's self-serious aesthetic. Yet the ridiculousness of the story calls for a more lighthearted tone. Yeah. This is fairy tale. This is not a guy realizing that he's a superhero. This is not a doctor realizing that he's been dead the entire movie. This is a fairy tale and you have put this in a self-serious tone that is really detrimental yeah. to the movie.
3: Yeah. It's so. I mean, the word I, I keep going back to is nimble. There, you, mm-hmm. you need you need something that's nimble, and this is not it. Like Spielberg, at a certain point, could have made something like this with a much better script. He could have made that thing, you know, something of that tone. Or like, I'm trying to think who's another director who like maybe Terry Gilliam at his best. You know what I mean? But uh like, y- there's there's this is oh my god. Like you're right. It's so like po-faced and like self-serious. He's so it's just leaden i mean it's just so heavy and it's like this is not what you need to be heavy about
4: i think rob reiner could have done this better
2: yeah you guys bring up spielberg and reiner you know what i just thought of <laughs> is the way to tell this story is you tell it through a kid's eyes princess you make this yeah. like yeah like et or stranger things or stand by me have a bunch of kids figure oh, all this oh, out. Yeah, that yeah, would yeah. make it yeah you know what i'm saying oh, no, Like that would be something that yeah. i could actually. Oh my god, I could I I would actually kind of like that depending on how it's executed obviously, okay. but yeah, you guys are absolutely right, a different director, a different tone, a different aesthetic. Right. what this movie needed like to
3: do a rewrite like again like i, I feel like i'm going to be doing this a lot of this series but, like to do a rewrite what what if this is a movie giamatti is still a character what if he's got a daughter or a son or something like that yes and you know what i mean and giamatti can still be part of the story he can be part of the the rest of this film but like capture it through some childlike innocence not through the eyes of this fucking 40 year old apartment handyman like it, it's just so uh-huh. misguided oh my god
4: Princess Bride doing it in that manner where it's literally a bedtime story. Call it derivative, but it worked within the context of this story because the morality of it, it's no more sophisticated than your standard fairy tale or or Disney story.
2: Story reveals that the vessel is a writer who is writing something very important. More on that later, guys. (laughs) We (laughs) went... Cleveland investigates and goes to Mr. Farber, who's bitching about having to see a romance film tonight. He then goes to Mrs. Bell, who has a butterfly land on her. More on that later as well. We cut to Jeffrey Wright. Matt, why are we covering all of Jeffrey Wright's fucking movies? Because Uh. he
4: got a lot of work, and I'm sure he took this, sleptwalked through it, because he's like, I'm set, I'm going to be in Bond in six months. I love Jeffrey he Wright. Doing like,
3: a- he's one of those guys who just brings so much like, gravitas to anything. Like, he just brings so much. Like, when he sh- when he shows up on screen, you just kind of sit up and you're just like, oh, it's Jeffrey Wright's here. All right. And he, like, finds fun ways to play characters and, like, fun voices and stuff. Like, sometimes maybe a little much. He could maybe do a few too many affectations. That's not what's happening here. But it's like, I I, I when he showed up, I was like, okay, well, may- maybe we'll do something with, with Jeffrey Wright. Maybe we'll play with Jeffrey Wright for a while. And it's like, well... Not really. He's not going to be doing anything fun. It's like we're going to be doing our tasks, Jeffrey Wright, for a while.
2: <laughs> well, I have been pretty outspoken on the show. I'm not a Jeffrey Wright fan. Oh, really? I, I find his de- yeah, I find his deliveries to be – I don't want to have to lean in and hear what somebody's saying. <laughs> he does that a lot in Fair, He
3: does do that, yeah. You know? Him, <laughs> him and Jared but- Harris are both very, like – Oh, yeah. Like, uh, like yeah. Uh, a little closer to the microphone, Jared. Like, it's, it's a little bit more like that. Speaking of Jared Harris. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> but Jeffrey Wright, he's doing a crossword puzzle as his son reads cereal boxes. I cannot believe both these plot points get integrated into the mythology that M. Night's building here. Mike, you were watching this movie for the very first time. Did you have any idea where this was going?
3: No, and I kind of just, but I knew it was going to go somewhere stupid. Like I, I could just tell. Like <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know what these characters, like what purpose they were serving. Like I, I could tell that he, there was something a little bit more to them than just, like in Rear Window when, uh, uh, like all the other people other than fucking uh, Raymond Burr in the apartment building who are like they've all got their own mm-hmm. thing of like you know they're like oh there's the the girl who dances and guys you know writing a song and everything like that i feel like he's doing more than that like i feel like this is going somewhere but i feel like i'm not gonna like where this is going that, that was my kind of feeling this whole time
2: m night's so happy you compared him to hitchcock so. i know
3: right i shouldn't have said that
2: so cleveland he goes to the band who feel like they're in the state of reek oh boy the fucking dialogue here wow and Cleveland concludes that there's no way they can be the vessel as they haven't been writing essays, as he says. Man, Mike, you know, you bringing up the dialogue in the first two podcasts of this, it's really been going through my head. And it's so apparent yeah. in movies that just not only are they not well told, but the dialogue is coming at you at the screen and you're paying more
3: attention to it because the movie's not that good. Yeah.
2: Boy, is it fucking apparent
3: here. Yeah. Especially with a film that really is about writing. Like, it's like. Is like leading into the idea of like great writing and you're sitting here and you're like, no, yeah. it isn't.
2: <laughs> so we hear more of the story as Troy tells him about the bad creatures who are meant to kill him, narf when they are out of the water. We are then introduced to Vic, played by M. Night Shyamalan, who says that his writing is going slow, six months to be exact. Now it should be said... There was never anyone else considered for this role, guys. He earmarked this role for himself. Rather than jump in the Hollywood talent pool and possibly humiliate another would-be big-named actor into the role of an author whose writing will change the course of the universe for the better, M. Knight thought he himself could embody this role.
0: The
3: ego. I mean, this is... Like, we've we've mentioned that he has been in these other films, but we've never really commented on his uh, acting abilities uh-huh the only time before this that there's been any kind of emotional or thematic or any kind of weight on his characters has been in signs and we didn't really touch on that here mm-hmm. the entire fucking emotional load star of the film is relying on the acting skills of M. Night Shyamalan and he can deliver a line like he can like hit his mark and stuff like that but he is not up for this at all like like this is no. it's embarrassing It's bad. You can see him sort of in the part. Like He does not fit in. He does not have chemistry with the actor who's playing his sister. He does not have chemistry with Bryce Dallas Howard when they're supposed to be making their connection later on. Like, he is just uh, nothing on screen. And this guy is supposed to be the fun. And there's, like, moments that should, like, like, in a well-executed version of the story, should be, like, powerful moments. Just don't play at all. Because he's just there. He's giving off nothing.
4: No vapor is as strong as arrogance. And it has never been more personified than casting yourself as the writer who is prophetically told his words will save the world and will inspire a president. The leader of the free goddamn world is going to be inspired by one of your movies. I picture Shyamalan in his bedroom with the Glengarry Glenn Ross brass balls that Alec Baldwin walks around Looking <laughs> into a mirror, saying, I got this. I got brass balls. I can fucking do this. And you're right. This is not a Quentin Tarantino acting job where you just want to grip out your eyeballs, cover them in bleach, and set them on fire every time he delivers a line. But in some ways, it's worse because Tarantino's at least obligated himself to cameos. Yeah. Not the focal point of one of his own fucking movies. How much better would this be if the M. Night Shyamalan character, the author, it was
3: Nicolas Cage as Charlie Kaufman or as Donald Kaufman? Replace the sister with Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> Donald Kaufman will be the will be will be the author who like creates the new world.
1: Or <laughs> <laughs> it's Harvey, a much better Harvey
4: from American Splendor. <laughs> oh my god, that would be amazing. <laughs> I love that idea.
2: Now, there's no question that this was ill-advised, but here's my question to you guys. Are we mad because of how bad he is in the role, yes. or the fact that he put himself in these world-changing shoes?
4: Also, yes. Both. Both. Yes. Little a column A, little of column B. More there you go. More B if I had to pick.
2: Now, I'll agree with you, Mike. I don't find him to have any chemistry with his sister, but I will say I like her a lot.
4: Her name is I,
3: I Sarita Chodary, possibly. And yeah, she's a good actor. She was a Mississippi masala and other things as well. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of like Anne Hathaway when she was hosting the Oscars with James Franco, where it's like she has to, like, uh, cover up for, like, what he's not doing.
2: Your comparisons are out of this world sometimes. Yeah, I-, I love each and every time she's on screen. But you're right. He has zero chemistry with her. I never believed that they're brother or sister. Cleveland sees that it is called The Cookbook, guys. The Cookbook. And Vic says it's his thoughts on leaders and has no idea who's going to want to publish the thing. Ooh, the cookbook.
3: The fact that it's so vague, I think he thinks that's a good thing, but it's actually a bad thing. Like, the fact that it, yeah. he doesn't outline, like, like, what's the fucking philosophy about, like, the easy joke would just be to say, like, it's, it's, like, mind comps, like, it's something of that, like, level of complete insanity and, like, you know, I, like, what is in this thing, the cookbook, it sounds like fucking Kaczynski wrote it, or, like, it's, like, who, who, fucking, I mean, it's, like, it's the cookbook, it sounds like he's fucking telling you how to make bombs, like, drop on federal buildings. <laughs> Sounds like a lunatic, and like his description of it sounds like something out of like Breitbart or something. He's like he's talking about like he's like, oh, this is my thoughts on like the issue, all the issues in the <laughs>
4: culture of today. And it's, like, not, I don't like where
3: this is going. Oh,
0: in his
4: defense, the cookbook is the main title. The subtitle is "Chicken Soup for the Eagle Obsessed Maniac."
3: <laughs> what if it's just a book about being a Philadelphia Eagles fan? <laughs> Like it's just about like you guys know what it's like being from Philly. Got to got to the Eagles,
4: Eagles. You know,
3: it's like, uh,
4: how did he make all these movies about Philadelphia and there's not a single cheesesteak in any of his movies? Uh, yeah. no, <laughs> one, don't, no, no one, no one, chuck the
3: battery at anyone.
2: We also find out that Cleveland believes he has no purpose, as he was a doctor at one point, but his wife and children were murdered, and that it is when he stopped being happy. Story tries convincing him that all beings have a purpose. Can I
3: I just stop here? Was this necessary? No, it's not necessary. It's so stupid. It's like, you guys know how when your family gets murdered, you lose your medical license? You guys know about that, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> did, did the fucking killer walk into his apartment and take his diploma and afterwards he like couldn't prove that he was a doctor? What, why is he a handyman? This doesn't make any sense! Just because you're depressed doesn't Zero. mean you change careers. Like you, you, you give up your incredibly ah. This is so stupid. Like it's such a like it's like a, <laughs> it's like a it's like a it's like ah it's like half of an idea. It's like he didn't fucking finish the thought of like this is a guy. He's like seen his life destroyed by trauma, and now he's like in a in like a lower place. Like he's like he's not living up to his potential or whatever like that. But it's like no, that doesn't make any sense. Like he'd still be a doctor even if he like was depressed or whatever. He's not. He didn't look. Ah, oh, this is. I'm, I'm. I know. I'm just I yelling at this but it's fucking stupid
4: this is Shyamalan lashing out not just at critics he's lashing out at his own family because let's not forget that he comes from a family of doctors Mm -hmm. and they looked at him being a director as slumming it so I think this is him saying a middle finger to those as well from his family who didn't believe in him it's amazing how multifaceted this movie is like this movie shouldn't have a film critic reviewing it it should be a psychologist yeah.
2: yeah his wife
4: yeah she should have him on a couch instead mm-hmm. when he when he goes on siskel and ebert or ebert and roper at the time instead of a chair the big couch and they're saying tell me about the time your father said you wouldn't amount to anything as a director there's yeah. so much like freudian psychoanalysis you could do in this movie and it amounts to oh uh, god it amounts to a turn in the wind
3: <laughs> and, like, the, like to be a little, like, sort of sincere, like, to, get, to spot Shyamalan a, a couple of points, we're looking at this in the context of his other films. He clearly has an interest, at least from a storytelling perspective, in how people recover from trauma. That is a recurring mm-hmm. element in his films. It's there in The Sixth Sense. It's there in Signs. It's there in... Unbreakable. Uh, Unbreakable. It's there in the village. It's the whole backstory of why there's a fucking village. Uh Clearly that's something he's interested in. It might be tied into like like you're pointing out, the fact that he comes from a family of doctors and like that, you know, doctors are, you know, helping people process their own trauma in their own ways. And that might be part of it. Like he's clearly trying to do that here, but it's so goddamn lazy what he does with the Giamatti character here. He gives him the most cliche of backstories. I mean, we, people rip on Christopher Nolan for having the dead wife. This is dead wife. You don't see a fucking picture of the wife. You don't know what her name uh, uh, unless I'm yeah. is. You don't know what her name is. You don't know what her interests were. You don't know what the kids' names were. You don't know what age they were or what gender they were or anything like that. It's yeah. so non-committed to what should be the fundamental facts of this guy's life that there's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing as an audience member to commit to because the director's not committing to it. And so that means that any kind of emotional force that you're trying to convey, with this backstory of this character and this motivation of this character, is simply
2: not there. Vic then shows up at Cleveland's apartment and meets eyes with Story, who says that, I'm so glad to have met up with you, and I'm just not feeling it. Boys, we are only 40 minutes into this film, <laughs> and, uh...
3: Is this the longest <laughs> film yet? Like, I, I noticed, like, he doesn't make very long films, usually under two hours. No, there's... Yeah, close. they're
2: all under two hours. It is in 109 minutes. I'm not sure if that meets up with the villains or not, but I don't know. It feels like it, though. I'll put it that way. It really does. And Story says that Cleveland has a big heart. So we're setting up Cleveland as the guardian because he always feels the need to protect Story. Of course, we'll find out in one of many twists at the end of this movie that that isn't the case. The sprinkler is spurred on, meaning danger is imminent, and as the Narf once again tries to leave... Here's a scrunt to stop her in her path. And Matt, you're absolutely right. This is Shyamalan not letting her leave and having Cleveland be the savior.
1: Yep.
4: Well, to be fair, she is white as well. <laughs> <laughs> the pastiest savior imaginable. If Wonder Bread was an actor, it would be Paul Giamatti.
3: No, no, he's got more than that. He'd be like, start with bread at least, right? He's Italian, Giamatti. He never plays Italian, though. That's for my own podcast later. That'll be my Italian movie podcast. <laughs>
2: So Cleveland brings her to Vix, who says that she can stay as long as she needs to. He then talks to Choi, who says that scrunt have a poison that kills narfs, but they can be protected by a cure that's contained where they live. And by the way, there are also Tartutics, who are law keepers in this story, and we are led to believe that these are fucking bad guys, but of course they're not. They are set to live in trees, and they look like monkeys. So let's pile even more bullshit mythology on this unestablished, no-rules universe.
1: The, All the right. more we stuff
2: get to... that get
3: added, you just, you really do throw. I, I'm trying to think, of, I wish I, I, should have made a note of the exact point I, like, just, like, threw out my hands. It's like, oh, fuck this. Because it, 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 God, it, was such a specific, I know what it was. We'll get to it. I'll tell you. Well, a... maybe
2: it's right here, because this is when I did the first time I watched this movie. Cleveland jumps in a pool to, uh, find the key, which will cure the narf. He undoes the grating under the pool, which, by the way, Shyamalan was insistent, looked like the thing in a Strangers on a Train, because we're, Making more references to Hitchcock here.
3: Almost everything. And this is just, a, this is just a, uh, a little tangent, but almost everything that's filmed underwater is bad, right? Can we all agree on that? Any kind of like action sequence that's filmed underwater, like almost like ninety nine percent of the time, is shitty and boring and slow.
4: And stretches the point of believability. Like you talk about pools closing at seven p.m. Paul Giamatti must be an Olympic diver because. <laughs> well, <laughs> gonna- I want to see that movie. It it is comical, the iron lungs that this guy has. He should have been fucking Aquaman, not Jason Momoa. I would love that. I I suggested that he play the Hulk, but I love Aquaman, too.
3: Ruffalo can still be Banner, but when he transforms, he transforms into Paul Umadi painted green. Continue. My
2: favorite is he finds a straw and a glass under this water, and he's able to breathe that in for two seconds, and that allows him ten more minutes of air. He learned that at the (laughs) Navy Seals. He grabs the key, which is mud, he drops it on the way out, but we'll find out later that he goes back to grab it. Mike, is this one of the dumbest things you've ever seen in a movie? The scene right here.
3: I don't know. I've seen some pretty dumb stuff. <laughs> this is up there. This is this is definitely up there. And I will say, though, this is not the moment where I lost it. So
2: we haven't gotten Oh, wow. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We then hear more of the story. The Madden Narf, that is truly the key, as she is seen as a queen by her people. So the scrunt is going to go through all depths to kill the Madame Narf, who we believe is Story. Cleveland gives Story the cure. And yet again, we find out that a character in this movie is so much more important than she realizes, which is the Narf. Vic comes back again to tell Story that she did something to him then, that everything is becoming clearer and his thoughts are now on a good path. She tells him that there will be a boy who becomes a leader. And Vic's book will be the seeds of what inspire the change.
4: Ding, ding, ding. This is the moment.
3: <laughs> That's it? Yep.
2: That's when you knew that there was a point of no return, right? Yeah,
3: pretty much. There's some movies where you, you watch them and you're like, well, the beginning's not great, but by the end of it, like it builds somewhere, so like it bumps it up from like a five to a six. This is the moment where I'm like, this movie can only go down from here. There's no going up. This film has established a ceiling. They fucking drywalled it. It's there. There's a ceiling there. And like it can be there or it can be lower, but it's not getting any higher. So
4: what what is the moment that you specifically were broken.
0: Where
2: Story mentions to Shyamalan's character that he will inspire a boy to (laughs) become president.
4: Uh, I'm laughing because this is so fucking dumb. I can't say the movie ever lost me when a movie never has me to begin with. Mike's right that it it only goes downhill from here. I think this movie has more bad decisions than your freshman year of college.
3: Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm still in that. Just letting you know, I'm still in (laughs) that.
4: You and everyone else who listens (laughs) to this show. It's
3: like it's like Velvet Underground's first album. Like, not everybody bought it and listened to it, but like everybody who listened to it went on to start a band. Everybody who listened to this podcast is going to be using that line now.
2: I'm just seeing Paul Giamatti pretend to be childlike, eating cookies, drinking milk, laying on the couch in his pajamas, and I feel just really bad for him here. I'm so glad that Hanks didn't
4: take this role. Yeah. Yeah. And like he was doing this, there's no way.
3: Like Jimboi is an actor who, like has clearly has like no ego as an actor like he's clearly yeah. willing to make himself look ridiculous if he thinks that that's what the film requires. Mm-hmm. Spider Man Two or uh, Amazing Spider Man Two like we've seen the pictures not he all of us have seen the movie, movie
4: but we've seen the pictures and like he made a movie where he jumped into a blue pool yeah came out looking like a blueberry with orange hair. He's not above embarrassing himself. He wanted to make
3: a sequel to Planet of the Apes. He yeah. wanted to do that Planet of the Apes thing again. And and,
4: and, and yeah. about that? Since I'm on a tangent, Paul Giamatti plays the exact same character in Planet of the Apes that he does in Twelve Years a Slave. It's the same fucking character. You are exact. That is exactly correct. I wonder if that was a factor. Like I wonder if.
3: I don't know if Steve McQueen was like, you know, he was like flipping through the channels and was like, oh, my favorite mach Wahlberg film is on or whatever. I, <laughs> I can't imagine that's what happened, but it possibly is what happened. So, yeah, this is an embarrassing scene. I mean, it's embarrassing. You, do, you feel bad for him. You're like, oh, you shouldn't have to do this. You went to Yale, fine, yeah. sir. Your father kicked Pete Rose yes. out of baseball.
4: You at least are half-hero. Speaking of Pete Rose, you could have had Cain show up in Tombstone Pile drive him. And that would be, like, the fifth most ridiculous thing in
2: this movie. Cleveland goes back to story, and we're getting an overhead shot of the back-and-forth communication between the two before Cleveland says that there are humans with powers that can help her, unconsciously living near the vessel, and always people that are introduced earlier in the story more piling on now matt you're watching this with christian for the first time i'm wondering you said you guys were sitting in stone silence during this entire thing there was no laughter there was no any back and forth between you two during this
4: not between us but you can tell when you've been with someone long enough when they're getting antsy or upset he kept crossing his legs he kept rolling his eyes <laughs> He got up in a couple points. I saw him come back in with a bottle of scotch and just plopped it right on the table that I broke a couple weeks ago. Uh, The the writing was on the wall that this was not a pleasant experience for him. There we go. He's probably in bed right now, like, having nightmares about this fucking movie.
2: (laughs) So we have a guardian, a symbolist, a guild, a healer in the form of a human, and someone who butterflies are drawn to. And that the eagle is coming back only one last time to pick her up. Speaking of Tolkien. God.
3: <laughs> I had I, exactly. I That's like, exactly what I yeah, thought of. We all thought of it. Okay. So, clear, so clearly we were like, why didn't Bryce Dallas Howard just pick the the eagle's amount thing? Like, yeah. So uh, this is dumb. Like this, like this whole thing of like everyone has to fulfill their fucking role. You know what? It, you just reading off the roles that people have. You know what it made me think of? Is the, What's do that? you guys know the song Atlantis by Donovan? Yeah. the one that. The- yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and there's the part at the beginning, that has that really long intro where he's just talking utter gibberish, like M. Night Shyamalan level gibberish about the lost continent of Atlantis, and he's like, the poet, the farmer, the physician, the scientist, all the legends, <laughs> and it's like, you're like, alright, okay, and that's what's going on in this movie, like, this has the depth of a, it, it, the intro to a Donovan song. And I love Donovan, but like, you, you need more than the intro to a Donovan song to create a script, and that's sort of the basis here.
2: Cleveland then goes to Mr. Farber, who says that there's no originality left in the world and that the symbol character has to be simple. Look for someone who does mundane things but requires analysis and is skilled in puzzles. Mike, we are an hour in. Is this movie having any hold on you whatsoever, or are you just trying to get through
3: it? Uh, I would say it, it was having a hold in the sense of I was like, all right, fucking do this. Like, let's. Uh, I haven't done this in a while because of, of the lockdowns and everything, but like, uh, I used to take kickboxing classes, and like, uh-huh. There's, sometimes you get, like, five minutes into it, and you're like, oh, my God. Like, I don't know if i was fucking ready for this feeling. No, God damn it. i got fucking 55 minutes left. I started this. I'm going to fucking finish this, and I might be destroyed by the end of this, but, like, 55 minutes from now, I'm going to have fucking completed this class. Like, that's kind of what I was feeling like when I was watching this film. I was like, God damn it. This movie is fucking kicking my ass, but I'm not going to let it win. I'm going to get through this thing, and maybe by the end of it, I will just sweat it through my clothes, but I'm going to make sure that – Bryce
4: Dallas Howard gets on that fucking
3: eagle
0: and
4: flies into the night sky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to use my own analogy, this movie is like when you got to take a shit and there's no bathroom nearby. you just got to sit there and, you know, you got to sit there and take it. There's nothing you can do. you got to, you know, let it pass or you're going to have a messy accident. Yeah, <laughs> and this right here where he's blatantly calling out rules. This is him taking off his writer's pen and putting on his director's hat saying these people will do whatever the fuck I tell them to do
2: the guild is revealed to be a group of characters always together giving terrible dialogue that means nothing so cleveland has put the entire set of people together he introduces all of them to story but spoiler alert all this is for naught because they are all in the wrong roles I cannot believe well-trained actors are having to l- deliver this set of scenes. <laughs> I mean, these are all established actors. They've all been in very good things before. It's kind of like The Village. They've all been praised before. But we're watching them give this kind of dialogue and these kinds of scenes. And I'm going to get to one here in a little bit that is just, it just goes way far. But my God, Mike, I mean, are you embarrassed
4: for these people? Yes. <laughs> yeah. i <To get> embarrassing. <laughs> We skipped over what I think is the funniest scene in the unintentionally hysterical scene in this movie. And I talk about how this movie doesn't follow its own rules in the beginning. We're specifically told and we have to watch a ten minute sequence where the sister has to communicate to Bryce Dallas Powered story through nonverbal communication because she cannot talk about her world. Yeah. That is immediately followed by a scene where she tells Paul Giamatti verbally over a walkie-talkie every single piece of information about her world. <laughs>
2: That was actually coming up here in a couple of scenes, but yeah, you're right.
4: <laughs> this movie is so disjointed, I forget what scenes happen when.
2: I know. It's all meaningless.
4: It's all like, oh, it turns out the Guardian
3: yeah. is actually the Overseer, and the, the Overseer is actually the Philosopher, and the and it's like, this means nothing. This is, you, you just, you, it's mm-hmm. like, I've been blindfolded, and you're like, moving chairs around. Like, well, I guess a chair is moved. I don't know what that fucking means. I don't know what the chair looks like or what it feels like to sit in it, but there's a chair that's moved. I know that
4: much. You're one Rick Moranis away from them saying the words gatekeeper and keymaster. It really is. It, it's that. I mean, it's it's the Ghostbusters, but, they, you know, but they're
3: it's fun. But uh, yes.
2: So Jeffrey Wright figures out through his crossword puzzle that there needs to be a Surrey, which God. will confuse... The scrunch smell by making him unable to pinpoint where story is hold on
3: just. holy uh, shit! i cannot believe yeah. i am reading okay this. sorry i just had to <laughs> exhale there a little I
2: bit just, i just cannot believe this plot we are then told that the eagle won't land in the party so we're changing rules again so the eagle won't land amongst other people so again this would work when you're doing dealing with kids right guys the adults can't see it we did this in et yeah The adults wouldn't understand. The adults wouldn't get it. So, of course, we have to wait till there's nobody else around. But when you're dealing with adults, this makes zero fucking sense.
3: Or if there's any sense of, like, exploration, and there just isn't. It's just more stuff. Like, it's like if you're shopping, and, like, you've got a list, and as you're... Buying stuff, you're like, oh shit, I do have to buy fucking glue to get the thing back. Okay, I'll get the glue. And you're just like you realize you didn't have a big enough shopping cart to get everything in there, and it's just like more stuff just piling on. You're like, this is not gonna carry all this. Like that that's what's going on here. Like there's no sense of discovery, there's no sense of like uh exploration. It's just all just stuff. That's what this movie is. Mm-hmm. It's just called stuff. Just the poster yeah. should just be Paul Giamatti in like a white stock photo type background where where stock photos take place in this like white nether space. And it's like Paul Giamatti in his costume for the movie, like in a white nether space, and she says, stuff, M. Night Shyamalan, stuff. (laughs) And it will give you a better idea of what's going on in this movie.
2: Well, M. Night Shyamalan does say that what he's writing, he does say stuff when he's explaining the writing that he's doing. So (laughs) you might be onto something there. We then see that they now have walkie-talkies. And Cleveland finds the eyes in the mirror. Story instructs him to use in order to find him. Cleveland now faces the scrunt, challenges him to a fight, but this is where we find out, oops, Cleveland is not the guardian, as the scrunt isn't afraid of him as he looks in his eyes. All right. <laughs> Cleveland then.
3: Yeah, that's the right
4: reaction.
2: <laughs> Just get... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cleveland finds Farber, who asks why people like to stand around and talk in the rain in movies. <laughs> Everything's a fucking reference here. So Cleveland gets a speech from Mr. Leeds about if somebody deserves a second chance and that him hiding in this building means Cleveland will become more like him. So this character we've seen, what, two scenes of? We barely get an introduction to this guy. Of all the characters, this is the guy we have the least amount of connection to, and he's the one giving this speech to Cleveland here about how his life could be different if he just goes back to the way he was. Is this, I mean,
3: ugh. Who's this actor? is, Is this Bill Irwin? Yes, Bill Irwin. Yes, yeah. And like clearly, like Shyamalan is relying, like Bill Ir- Irwin's got a very like weird kind of energy and appearance. I mean, he's literally a clown. So like the guy brings a certain yeah. something that a lot of things that a lot of actors wouldn't necessarily bring. Like if this see Bruce Greenwood, this would not be the same. Thing. So he's clearly like relying on like this guy's slightly otherworldly quality to like do, do the heavy lifting. But like he can't just be like, all right, Bill Irwin, give me some gravitas and make this thing.
2: Vic finds out that somebody is going to kill him because of what he will eventually write. <laughs> yes,
4: yeah, so his and name Mike is Michael Garnerian.
3: and <laughs>
4: <laughs> it will happen at some point. It's gonna be like Goodfellas, where Mike's gonna beat the shit out of him, throw him in my trunk, and then I'm gonna be the one that ends up burying him on the so- on the side of the fucking highway. <laughs> and Donovan's Atlantis will be playing the entire time. Yes,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: All back. <laughs>
2: We then cut to the party and another overhead shot where Mr. Farber is striking out while trying to fit in while Story tells Cleveland that she doesn't know how to lead, making her an unlikely candidate for being the Madam Narf. They all stand guard at the sprinklers, but the scrunt appears and takes Story away. Cleveland saves her again, and Jerry busts out his crossword puzzle in order to say that he does not feel like an interpreter.
0: Oh. Yeah,
3: this, we is, then cut this to is, the movie has kind of broken me at this point.
2: You know, it's, it's reached that point. We then cut to Farber. And am I the only one who finds this death to be one of the most annoying deaths in the history of cinema? How he's saying it's a moment from a horror movie where the creature kills an unlikable side character while that character gives a humorous moment. This moment here is when I slapped my head the first time I watched this movie at just the gall of M. Night and. In- but this was before, you know, I made the connection of M. Night being the writer who saves the world and all this. My first time watching this was, I didn't even see it in theaters. I saw it on cable at home. I waited for it to show up on, I think it was Stars. And I watched this and my head was spinning at this point. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Mike, at this point, you seem numb. You seem like you've had enough crazy. You're just trying to just. Wait for the 109 minutes to Xbox. Yeah,
3: this is when you're doing the cool down at the end of the kickboxing class and like your legs are just jelly, but like you got to <laughs> still there for a few more minutes. This is the lowest worst version of the scene in Scream where uh, uh, yes. uh, Jamie Kennedy is, is doing his thing. Like this is this is and that's a good scene and everything like that but the, so so like if scream 2 is the, is the worst version of scream and scream 3 is the worst version of scream 2 this is like the scream 8 to scream 3. like in terms of like it just gets worse yeah, and worse this is such a this is such a um, god I'm I'm in reference town tonight but like it's like in multiplicity where Michael Keaton keeps making clothes <laughs> of himself and each one is like a little bit degraded and like the last one is just like a complete idiot Yeah. Like this, this is yeah. that to any kind of metafictional sort of thing
2: but it gets better mike It gets better because the interpreter, get this, is the kid who reads cereal boxes. We find out from his boxes of Rice Krispies that there is a ceremony that needs to be done in order to bring strength to the moment. This is all taken at face value, by the way. Like, nobody questions any of this. This
4: movie fucking blows. (laughs) It's so bad. Well, this is the prime example of Shamash tradition. All the adults act like children little yeah. children act like adults because nobody questions a single thing about Paul G. Mighty's story ever. No. They just automatically sure. assume that everything he said is factual because it's almost like a cult-like myth. This movie should have been called The Village because it's actually like <laughs> a cult of people who don't question anything he fucking says. That's
3: kind of a good idea for a horror movie, though. Like, a, a, like if there was a monster that was stalking the cult and, like, the uh-huh. cult leader had to, like... Like, like, I had to protect everybody, but he's a fucking cult leader, so like, his instincts are all bad, and like, he can't lie, or like, he has to lie to the people, but like, he, that could be, that could be something there. A24, call me up, I can maybe figure something out. <laughs>
2: It's so fucking off the wall. I cannot believe everything. Like, he just keeps piling on. As soon as you think it get, can't get any more ridiculous, here comes this kid to read cereal boxes to find out what they need to do next. Everything is its just all random with Shyamalan. You know what it is? It's like X-Files where the supernatural is always the answer. You know, that's never science. We're not going to go to science to figure things out. It's all supernatural. And oh, it works in X-Files, at least the first few seasons. It doesn't work here. It just doesn't, and in the majority of the last couple movies we reviewed. So everyone is once again gathering the guild as the Tartutik. I'm sorry, not the Tartutik. The, uh, the Scrunt makes himself known in the laundry room, by the mm. way, and we hear the eagle in the sky making his way down. The boy comes back to say he fucked up and says instead of a she, it is a he that will lead the ceremony that will bring strength to the moment. It also is revealed that Mrs. Bell is not the healer. It is Cleland himself. So how many twists can we fit in here, guys? Yeah, like,
3: like twist nothing it's like, it's like they're twisting something yeah. that is not we didn't give a shit about in the first place. so it's like who cares?
2: Exactly. Uh, almost there, guys. Cleveland does heal story with the seven sisters help and then has an emotional moment where he apologizes for not protecting her, an angel in his life, and that he's lost without them all. This is enough to get Story up and going. She tells Vic that his sister will have seven children and that he will see the first two. But here comes the scrunt, and when he attacks, we come to find out it's actually Reggie who is the guardian. He makes the scrunt move away, and then, what wouldn't you know, guys, here come the Tick to help. At the very last moment, I thought these were bad guys, number one. Number two, they come at this exact moment? Is that because we didn't have the CGI to cover? And Mike, you're absolutely right. The CGI here sucks. So the eagle comes down, Lord of the Rings style, and we get an emotionless goodbye between Story and Cleveland, where he thanks her for saving his life. And as she is taken away, credits mercifully roll on Lady in the Water.
3: The cinematography on this film is Christopher fucking Doyle. Yeah. Wild. (laughs) Wild.
2: Apparently, him and uh, Shyamalan did not get along. He, too, uh, they they had some uh,
3: notoriously difficult inside. Christopher Doyle. Yeah, like, he's like kind of notoriously a difficult person to work with. So, and uh, Shyamalan is notoriously an up his own ass person. Like, not difficult, and like you, you uh-huh. brought up, like he doesn't abuse his crew or anything like that. Like, it's not, he's not one of those guys. But it's just like I can see why this is not would not be a harmonious
4: setting.
2: Oh, Matt, we've done a lot of plot summaries on this show <laughs> Coming up on 200 Have I done as insane a plot summary as I just did?
4: <laughs> the only other one that I think has come close And this is another one we did with Mike Was The Keep Oh, it's yeah like, I don't know what yeah. the fuck is happening Or, you yeah. know, we've done Some of those Friday the 13th movie plots got insane But this is the apex up to this point
1: Oh Oh boy, oh, boy.
2: All right. I don't even know if I have keep, to ask. Let's go one to ten.
4: Well, hold, hold on. What's the that? between this and The
3: Keep, though, is that, like, with The Keep, it's so clearly a butchered, like, compromised, like, the, he, he didn't know what he was making or, like, he, what he wanted to make and what and he ended up making, like, clearly were so different. In this, you guys can disagree with me on this one, but this really does feel like a movie where, at the end of it, like, when he was at the fucking editing room, like, Shyamalan, he, like, put that directed by Inna Shyamalan at the end and was like, you've done it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like yep. he, he's yeah. so much, this is such oh, a yeah. confident film. Like, I, that's, I keep going back to work because it's true. I mean, he he's a confident filmmaker. Right. And, yeah. and it's it, it's apparent in his good movies and it's apparent in his bad movies, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. All right. On a scale of one to ten, what do we give Lady in the Water? Matt, let loose, sir.
4: Uh Okay. So, this movie is the most Shyamalan movie that Shyamalan has made up to this point. And what I mean by that is it is so distinctly him. This is 100 proof Shyamalan distilled to its finest filtered quote unquote perfection because no other person could make this movie because no one else had this perspective and this kind of ego um, sure. at, at this time. It is distinctly his and his visual flourishes are there. You know, God knows there's so many fucking close ups in this movie and the actor is just staring dead faced into the camera. But It all comes down to the script, and the village and signs, I argued, were big steps down because they reached a certain point where Shyamalan wrote himself into a corner and or just couldn't deliver the home run. This one, he got knocked unconscious by a line drive before he even stepped up to the plate. Congratulations to Leatherface. You are no longer the worst movie I have reviewed on the show. (laughs) Um, uh, This is one of my five most hated movies in the history of cinema. And I have seen, according to Letterboxd, over 3,000 movies. This is in my bottom five. I fucking hate this movie with every ounce of fiber in my body. I never wanted to see another Shyamalan movie after this. I thought aliens from science had shown up and lobotomized him. Before he stepped in front of the camera, because I couldn't believe this was the same guy who made the Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. If the village and signs were stumbling off the mountain, this was him getting drowned by a fucking avalanche on that same mountain. It's fucking garbage. (laughs) It's it's a zero out of ten. Fuck this movie. And Fuck Shyamalan for crawling up his own ass the way that he did.
2: Is it worse than any of the Transformers films that we did? We you really struggled through those. Yes. Is it worse than those? Yes,
4: I think this is as offensive for different reasons than something like Revenge of the Fallen. Oh wow!
2: All right, Mike, sir, you watched this for the very first time. What is your numerical score on Lady in the Water?
3: Uh, well, I I I, I like it more than that. Um, I, I it was not a zero out of ten for me. Um. Because there's something kind of a little bit fascinating about it for a while. Because you're just like, is this really, this, this is coming from a person's head? Like, this is, like, someone is writing this. And, like, there, there's something that you can sort of hear that the, the keyboard clicks as he writes it. And there's something kind of fascinating exactly. about that. And Giamatti gives you something to work with. This movie sucks. Like, it was halfway through this movie. I, I literally just, I just went on Facebook. And I never do this. And I did activity, watching Lady in the Water. And my stats was just this movie fucking sucks, all lowercase, because it's true, it, it does, this movie does fucking suck, like, it's just news, it's just, like, describing the weather, or describing something else, and, you know, it, this movie, I mean, I, you guys have listened to the
4: podcast, whoever's listening to this,
3: you know what the issues are with this movie, it is a complete misfire from beginning to end, there's almost nothing about it that works. It's so um, miscalculated. The reason I'm not giving it a 1 out of 10 is because I do think that it, it is not as boring as some truly terrible movies. Like, there's some truly terrible movies that y- you're just like, and, and, you're, like, shouting that at the screen because it's just so, like, y- y- you feel like you just, you're just trudging through it. This one's not quite that because for a while you are kind of weirdly, like, you know, train wreck kind of fascinated by it. You're like, what is this really? What's what he's asking Paul Ziamati to do. I don't think that lasts for the whole movie, but, uh, that is listed just a little bit above one out of 10 for me. So like, this is, this is not the worst movie I've ever seen. It's not, I don't think in the very bottom of movies that I've ever seen, like, you know, I've I've seen the John McTiernan rollerball. Like I've seen worse movies, but so this one, I'm going to give a, uh, a two out of 10.
2: Two out of 10 from Mike. Wow. My score written down here, I liked it more than you guys apparently. But that's not saying much. I think the reason why I find this movie just so utterly fascinating is because in reading the behind the scenes and reading how Shyamalan was so confident in this script and so hurt by Disney not having the same confidence as him in it, it makes it imminently watchable for me like i I see each decision on that screen and warner brothers writing the checks for these scenes to be filmed and i just think god what the hell made you think this was going to work nothing in this movie works the way it's supposed to but i think that's why i find it imminently watchable i haven't seen this movie in years it's been at least 10 years since I've seen this movie but I will probably watch this again in a real tongue-in-cheek way just to see the gall that Shyamalan displays in this movie now it is not a good movie if you're trying to watch this for a good narrative you're gonna be shit out of luck there's just nothing to really grasp onto here you're not seeing really good filmmaking you're seeing some performances that I could take or leave I think we've said our piece on Giamatti I like Shyamalan's sister in this movie I thought she was very fun character but to have this character that Giamatti goes to each and every time and says, all right, what happens next in this story? What happens next in this story? What made him think that was like a good storytelling device? What made him think this would work? What made him think that taking this fairy tale that you tell your kids at night to make them fall asleep would make a good two-hour movie? There's nothing that a sane person would look at in this script and say, yes, that would work. But I think that's why I like it. Now, I'm not going to say I'm going to go three. It's not like I'm much higher than you guys. But I don't think it's one of those movies like, I don't think I'll watch The Village again, but I will watch this again, just because it's so fascinating to just see that ego displayed on screen. But can it get worse? Next week, strange things are happening in the world of M. Night Shyamalan, and it is called The Happening. Now, Mike, you have said that you watch this movie pretty regularly. Is that true?
3: No, I would say I watch it pretty regularly, uh, but uh, I've seen it multiple times, too many times, really. Um, I, I maybe should save this for next week but I first saw this in a high school science class uh so that yes so you want if you want a statement on the the was that my Shyamalan teaching that class he might as well have been he taught it as much as the person who taught it did which is to say not at all um yeah so
4: we'll get to that uh I've seen it multiple times I can't
2: wait for that story yeah save that I cannot wait Matt what are you expecting next week when we review The Happening
4: I didn't see The Happening until I was in college I swore off Shyamalan after leading the water. Okay. And I only saw it because people were telling me I was going to laugh my balls off. The brass balls that I have next to my seat that I stole from Shyamalan. But I was told that about leading the water that it was so, like, my mom told me that. Like, it's the worst fucking thing she'd ever seen, and that she laughed and still hated it. But the question is I gave this a fucking zero. Am I going to see something worse than this? I honestly don't know. Mm-hmm. I can't decide that.
2: All right. Tune in next week. If this podcast doesn't get your interest for next week, I don't know what will. Man, what an interesting discussion we just had. So till next week, we'll review the happening. They try to help man, but man may have forgotten how to listen to podcasts. Thanks guys.
0: Says hi. She says she's sorry
3: for taking the bumblebee pendant. She just likes it a lot.
1: The binge movie Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. Joseph, did you load that gun?
0: You won't get hurt.
1: Elijah was wrong.
4: There's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water?
1: Voice narration done by
0: Adam. You, alone, will follow the road and leave Covington Woods.
1: Garrett. Maybe people are setting off the plants? What are you saying? That guy was crazy. We have to save them. They're already dead.
4: Send ships drop those things
0: There's um, there's lots of visual tension
1: to whom am i speaking with now Dr Fletcher <laughs> it's
2: Uh, music who, yeah, who has music going on in the background? Is uh, that you,
4: Matt? No, uh, Christian's playing the piano in the uh, in the other
2: room. Uh, okay, all right, all right. Uh, <laughs> can he can he can he still play the piano, uh, hearing all your anger come out of that room uh, <laughs> in the next said, two hours?
4: <laughs> he said, "I know you're recording, um, and I want to play some happy music before you." <laughs> he, he watched it with me, and, well, he oh no.
2: All right. What? No!
3: But you don't have to expect him to be able to give you a fairy tale, except that's what he's trying to do here, and it doesn't work at
4: all.
2: Mm-hmm. Let's Matt, say, do you have anything to add to that?
4: Y- yes, I, I do, actually. I have a lot of things that I will be adding throughout this discussion. <laughs> okay.
0: What? No!
4: Making a movie both out of spite and out of... Almost preaching to the choir of anyone who will listen that you're a genius and people just don't understand you. Yeah.
2: Mike, you keep bumping your microphone or something. Oh, sorry. Um, Yeah. I don't know what that is. I think that's coming from you. Just try to watch it.
4: Okay. He's lying on his couch and just putting his feet.
3: What? No. And there's something kind of nice about that. There's a misty quality to it. And, um, yeah. yeah, it's not bad. You're right, actually.
2: Matt?
4: Uh, I don't know.
2: <laughs> Descent. <All right>. Yeah. <laughs> he cannot compliment this movie. He just can't fucking do it. <laughs> oh, I tried fishing and I came up with a lore. We <laughs>
4: Cleveland... <laughs> What? No. How does he make all these movies about Philadelphia and there's not a single cheese steak in any of his movies? I, <laughs> <Really>?
3: No one, <laughs> no one chucked a the battery podcast. at anyone?
2: <laughs> I knew this podcast would be fun. What? No.
3: That's for my own podcast later. That'll be my <laughs> Italian movie podcast.
4: <laughs> we got to do the podcast <laughs> <funny laughs> retrospective sometime down the line. I've
3: talked about having <laughs> yeah. a Paul Giamatti costume party where everybody shows up as a different Giamatti character. Did I, I might have mentioned Jesus that before course. on the show. Did I?
2: I think you did, actually. Yeah. Well, it's still true. So, what? No,
3: we didn't give a shit about it in the first place. So it's like, who cares?
2: Exactly. Yeah, Matt, how are you feeling at this point?
4: Uh, comatose. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. <laughs> What? No. And Mike, you're absolutely right. The CGI here sucks. Do you have anything to add to this conclusion? No, nah, not
3: really. I'm pretty pretty pretty, pretty beaten down right. from this. <laughs> okay. I feel like a Cleveland heat myself. Like I just need to go somewhere, find right by- an apartment complex, fix <laughs> some fucking toilets. Maybe I'll
0: feel whole. Right again. now,
3: you're
2: you're you're sounding like you would like rather be watching Hannibal Rising than this movie. <laughs>
3: Yeah, <laughs> you were down yeah, on Hannibal Rising. That <laughs> movie did suck, but, you know. Yeah. I don't know, at least, at least Hannibal uh, Rising didn't try and make me keep track of who that was the fucking guardian and who was the interpreter. Yeah. I knew who Hannibal was. <laughs> he was the guy who was eating people. <laughs> there you go.
0: Swing away, Meryl. Meryl.
1: Swing away. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up!
3: I'm wasted.